1: Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Talking Metal. My name is Mark Striegel. I'd like to thank you for listening to the episode and to listening to Talking Metal. We are approaching 500. It's going to be a fun, somewhat special episode, I think. Nothing, no major surprises, but I think it's going to be a fun one that you guys are going to enjoy. We do a couple fun little things on it, so stay tuned for that. On today's show, we have Bob Nelbandian, who is the man behind a film documentary called Inside Metal. He's going to t- tell us all about it. He also is looking for the, uh, the heavy metal, hard rock community to show their support and help him get it in theaters. We're going to have links up to the page you can go to to pledge money and donate money to support this film. Bob's going to tell us about what that money will do in the production of this film. Actually, it's more about getting it into theaters, but Bob will fill you in on all the details. I saw a screener copy of this, uh, and it looks great. It's It's a fun watch, so I hope everyone can get to see it either in the theaters or on DVD at some point in the future. Again, it's called Inside Metal, and... Before we get into that interview with Bob, because it is a long one, I want to remind you that this episode of Talking Metal, and all episodes lately of Talking Metal, are sponsored by Defenders of the Old Festival 3. We have a link up to their Facebook page and our show notes on TalkingMetal.com today, and it's going to be a great time in Brooklyn, New York, with Exciter, the reunited Exciter, their first show on U.S. soil, The Rods. High Spirits, and many more. It's going to be a great weekend. I'm going to be there. Defenders of the Old Fest 3 in Brooklyn, New York, March 13th and 14th, 2015. For more information and more of the bands who are going to be playing at the Defenders of the Old Festival, go to today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com for this episode. And uh, the venue they're going to be playing at is the Bell House, by the way. I will be there and I hope to see you there. Let's get into the episode. This is Rat, Sweet Cheater, followed by my extensive talk with Bob Nell Bandian.
2: Cheater, sweet Cheetah we you gonna rock until you fall Sweet, sweet you gonna rock until you fall Sweet, sweet you gonna rock until you fall Sweet, cheater, sweet cheater.
1: Hey guys, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and on the line we have Bob Nelbandian. How are you, Bob?
0: Great. How are you
3: doing, Mark?
1: I'm good. I'm good. You have a new film out, which is really good, really educational. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. It's called Inside Metal, but first I want to just talk about you, because... The film isn't really necessarily about you. There's You're occasionally in it and there's shots of you and you're asking questions and you narrate it. But let's talk a little bit about your history because I think it's very interesting and important uh, in in the history of heavy metal. You were a kid growing up in Southern California, correct? Right. When all this stuff started happening and you took to it a little bit earlier than the rest of the country. You were there while it was all blossoming, and you started something called a fanzine, which a lot of our younger listeners might not know what that is. Can you explain what a fanzine is?
3: Yeah, Mark. I I was very fortunate to live right in the heart of LA. I actually lived in uh, Huntington Beach, which is in Orange County, which is about a less than an hour south of Los Angeles. So I was up in LA all the time and I started a, a metal fanzine. What a fanzine is, is basically a, a fan-made magazine. And usually uh back in the day, although fanzines did get to the point where it was glossy and, and color and they still called it fanzines, but back in the early eighties, fanzines were generally known as just Xeroxed uh magazines and you would use this was you know way before you know the the mainstream of computer, home computers and that kind of stuff so you would use rub off letters and typewriters you know to uh right. to uh, type on the fanzine and then you know put in photos and uh it was just a fun time it was during the days of the the early days of tape trading and you know we're talking you know 81 82 uh, I started the magazine in 82, uh, the fanzine, um, in, I think, April of 82. And, uh, what got me going on it was really Brian Slagle had a, a fanzine called the New Heavy Metal Review. And this is before he started Metal Blade. And, uh, he would sell them at his, he worked at a record store. He was the import buyer at a place called Oz Records, which was in the valley, which was like the, metal Haven back in the day. Okay. Uh, You know, the country club and all great, you know, uh, venues out there and tons of great record stores. And, um, you know, that got him started to do the first metal massacre. Actually, you know, metal blade was just basically started from a metal compilation. The first metal massacre that obviously, as you know, had, had, you know, ended up having rat and Metallica and uh, black and blue and, uh, you know, a a lot of great bands Um, that kind of what kick-started it, and, but the the fanzine that really got me interested was uh, out of the Bay Area, a guy by the name of Ron Quintana, who uh, is an underground metal Bay Area metal guru, and he started a magazine called Metal Mania, and I saw that, and it was more my speed where it was just xerox brian's magazine was a little bit slick you know even for right, okay. standards but uh, metal mania he had handwritten stuff in there and it was all typed and photos sewn all over and just chock full of metal information and all the great underground stuff and it's like wow you know i could do this this is something i could do and we we were all pen pals we all kind of knew each other and you know my very close friend Pat Scott, who lived in Huntington Beach with me, was uh very close with Lars Ulrich. He had met Lars around the time Lars had just moved into Newport Beach, which is about ten fifteen minutes from Huntington Beach, so Pat would take me over to Lars's house and Lars would make us this make us and this is before Metallica he was just this metal kid from Denmark who had the ultimate metal collection. He was so into the new wave of British heavy metal. And he had all the Japanese imports of bands like, you know, Japanese band like Bow Wow and 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 all this stuff that was super hard to find. And he had Japanese imports of L.A. bands. I, I remember seeing he had Legs Diamond and The Runaways. And yesterday and today, all on like Japanese imports. And I'm like, you know, how does this guy from Denmark know these bands? I mean, he was just this uber metal fan. And um you know this this was just a great period this was during the whole tape trading fanzine kind of thing where everyone traded the demos you know Metallica formed the Kill 'em All demo was being traded and you know, you were getting to hear bands like, uh, you know, of course, bands like Maiden were starting to come around and Saxon had Wheels of Steel that was released domestically. Motorhead with, uh, Ace of Spades was released out here. And then you had all these great underground imports, you know, uh, uh Diamond Head and Angel Witch and Tank. And we were trading these demos and BBC sessions and live recordings of these, uh, you know, uh, great bands. And I would send them all these great LA bands, uh, And, you know, one of the bands that's featured heavily in the documentary was Snow. They had an EP out of 10-inch EP, which, you know, I found that was like the ultimate EP for people in Europe to own. It was the equivalent of the Iron Maiden Soundhouse tapes here. You know, if you had the Soundhouse tapes, which you know is extremely rare... They were vying for, like, the, the Snowy Key, which was extremely rare. And I found out that all these uh, pen pals I had through, you know, Kerrang!, through the pen pal section and Kerrang!, all these, uh, you know, people that ended up writing for, you know, Metal Forces and all these different uh, European and uh, British magazines, they all loved the L.A. scene. And I was actually, honestly, more into the European metal, the new wave of British heavy metal, but also was a fan of the L.A. scene. And it's like, wow, I'm right here in L.A., so I'm recording, you know, and back then it was cool to to, to bootleg club shows and the, and the bands loved it. I would, you know, go in and uh, bootleg an Armored Saint show or August Red Moon show, and they would encourage it because they knew I would get it out to millions of fans overseas. And then all of a sudden they're getting letters from Belgium and Holland and you know, England and, you know, they were appearing in fans. And so that, that was how it was uh, done before the internet. And yeah. It was,
1: and you know. Uh- I can totally relate to what you're saying. I'm I, I was probably a few years later, but growing up in the Chicago area, I would go to the Holiday Inn in like Downers Grove, Illinois, where they'd have record swaps, and we would go in there and buy tapes of you know bands that we'd never heard of that the vendors were telling us were good, and, and a lot of times we'd discover great stuff. It was just such a different world back then, and fanzines were a big part of my life at that time. And your fanzine was called the Headbanger, and guys, you can definitely find it online if you if you do some searching i think it's actually on itunes
3: yeah we got on itunes and amazon i think we put just the first two uh issues up which is pretty pretty embarrassing i was like 17 and 18 at the time and Boy, was my writing bad, but yeah, it was... but
1: but there, but it's charming and it has it it has like a real feel to it. I mean, I was chuckling as I read the review of the Rat concert. Now, this is right. Rat before anybody even heard of Rat outside of probably your area. This is 1982. You reviewed one of their shows, and it, it sounds like it was a very very different, somewhat different band than than we all came to know.
3: Yeah, I think my partner later. actually reviewed that. And oh, did he? A, okay. Or a, 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 a fairly bad review if i remember correctly yeah it's
1: it's a terrible <laughs> review yeah yeah
3: but uh i you know it's funny because i, I didn't used to see rat back then and some of you know some of those early shows and you know to be honest some of the early metallica shows their first shows they were they um uh, weren't very good i mean they were i mean metallica just boom they started in their second show they actually opened up for saxon on the um uh, denim and leather when they came over to the uh whiskey and Mm -hmm. rat opened uh one of the shows and metallica did and that was metallica's second show no one had heard of the band and uh you know they were they were quite rusty and a lot of these bands were kind of rusty at the time but but it was it was cool and i ended up really getting really liking rat i saw rat several times opening up for motley Crue in the clubs and i think i saw i don't think i ever saw him with jakey lee but they had all different uh different players in the band before Warren Martini and, and uh, Robin Crosby came came around and they were much heavier uh, much uh, I mean if you hear like Tell the World from the Metal Massacre record and even, right. even the first EP it's, it's quite quite a bit heavier than
1: Oh I love that first Rat EP like Sweet Cheater I mean that's just right, it's too. so rock and and raw and as much you know I love Out of the Cellar too I think it's a really great record however that EP and and Rat isn't the only band where their, their first EP was was a little more street-sounding and a little more raw and real. You know, that EP just captures a real attitude that that some of the future rat stuff wouldn't quite grab a hold of.
3: Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing about the L.A. scene because everyone thinks of, uh, you know, the L.A. metal scene uh, You know, everyone thinks of the glam bands and stuff, but it wasn't really glam before that. It was when MTV started exposing these bands, that's when they kind of softened up their sound, did the ballads and did all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the poofed up hair. I mean, they still kind of had that image. Motley always had that image, but it was definitely more street, you know, leather, you know, uh, leather and chains, you know, uh Kind of image and even Rat too. I mean, uh, the first Great White EP, as you know, is much heavier. And there used to be a, a, a band called Dante Fox, which uh, was uh, Jack Russell, Mark Kendall, and this crazy bass player named Don Costa and Tony Richards, who ended up playing in Wasp. And, you know, the uh, it w- it w- the, the bands were much heavier then. I think once they got signed to major labels, their song, their, you know, the labels really wanted to get them a little bit more commercialized. And I think, you know, uh, seeing the success of bands like Def Leppard uh, on, on, you know, the High and Dry album, and then of course Pyromania, you know, that that really convinced the labels to, you know, really capture that kind of sound. But yeah, right. it, it was uh, it was quite a bit heavier back back then.
1: Well, let's let's even go back before that and get into the film a little bit. Again, the film guys is called Inside Metal: The Pioneers of LA Hard Rock and Metal. Now. When I read these heavy metal history books and believe me my bookshelves are just filled filled with them they they always tend to claim there was no real hard rock scene bef- before the explosion on the strip in the early 80s you know there was Van Halen and Quiet Riot and a lot of these history books kind of say hey that was it that was there really wasn't much else going on in the hard rock world in in Los Angeles Pre nineteen eighty, except those two bands. But your documentary paints a very different picture. You bring to to light a lot that there was actually a lot of other stuff going on. Absolutely. Wolfgang, Smile, Detective, uh, all sorts of bands. Uh, the Boys, right? That was the George Lynch one. Um, Snow, who you mentioned earlier. So let's talk about some of these because I got you know like a band like Detective. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't really know who they were and I've gone online and been searching out their stuff and wow, some great stuff. I mean, let's start with detective. This is a band that's featured in, in Bob's documentary and they were on Swan song, the Swan song label, the Led Zeppelin label, very tied in with the Zeppelin guys. Yeah. How, how big were they on the LA scene in what year are we talking about?
3: Well, this this might have been a little uh, earlier. I think they started around seventy five, and and first, let me say I, I I totally agree with what you're saying. A lot of the books have never talked about this, and that yeah, that's...
1: they they always say Van Halen, and then there was Quiet Riot. I mean, I I, exactly. I don't want to. I mean, I can actually think of a couple. Really respected authors who basically said, "Oh, those were the only two bands on the, in the scene in you know 1976."
3: Well, you know, if you were if you didn't grow up in LA during that time, you wouldn't know. And and I've even talked to you know a, a people that I respect heavily that I look up to, like a Martin Popoff, and he wasn't even familiar with these. And I thought Martin knew everything, but th- a lot of these bands didn't have records. It, it was before MTV. It was before you know, long before internet. So a lot of these bands just Fell by the wayside, but it was a big scene. But Detective were one of the bigger bands, and they weren't. They they were actually not a a local LA band, so to speak. They were kind of touted to be the next super group. Michael DeBar came over from England, and he was a part of that big glam. Uh, scene that came over from England with, you know, T-Rex and Sweet and uh, Humble Pie. I mean, they sound a little bit more like a Humble Pie. His vocals was very Steve Marriott. He was in a band called Silverhead that were signed to Deep Purple's record label, Purple Records. And, um, you know, you, you may know him. He, he ended up marrying uh, uh, Pamela
2: DeBar.
1: Right. Of course. And, of course. Right. Yeah, and definitely. so he was. And didn't uh, he have like more a, a commercial rock vibe in the like later in the 80s or, you know, in well, the yeah, 80s? He, yeah
3: he did after detective he went to join a a band called checkered pass which was with Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols but it was a little bit kind of poppy and then he went he replaced Robert Palmer in Power Station right right uh, and uh so he he's definitely had a a very diverse career um and you know you detective were not a metal band i think the thing that was confusing of with detective is no one could figure out what kind of band they were they were kind, they were blues they were, you know, hard rock. They they dressed kind of almost new wave all with suits and kind of short hair. Well, there's and, that
1: one song I was listening to Grim Reaper, which which very Zeppelin esque in my yeah. in my opinion. And, you know, being on the Swan Song label and I think it's in your in your film, they, they mentioned that they were talking to Jimmy Page about producing the record, but that never happened or something
3: yeah they signed uh to so they, they got one of the biggest deals. Swansong looked at the Swansong song only had a couple bands. He had bad company and uh I, I think they had like Robert Palmer, but I think that that might have been afterwards but uh uh detective was was Michael Debar and Michael monarch, who was from Steppenwolf who, of course, were a huge band from the uh, late 60s into the early 70s. You know, Magic Carp Ride, Born to Be Wild, obviously. And so they figured, you know, tying these two guys together with this fantastic drummer, John Hyde, very John Bonham-ish kind of drummer and um, very diverse lineup. They had a black bass player, Bobby Pickett, amazing bass player. And then they added a keyboard player, Tony K from Yes!, so kind of odd, you know, having a progressive keyboardist with, you know, kind of a blues. So it, it was a very, uh, but they were kind of touted to be a super super group. They've released two records, their debut, which had Grim Reaper and a song called One More Heartache, which, again, a very Zeppelin-esque. It starts with a total... John Bonhamish is and they were kind of radio hits in, in the uh, early uh or, or let's just say mid to late seventies on a couple of, of the radio stations. I remember hearing it on the radio and they, they just never really broke. I think people were kind of confused of, you know, is this a rock band that, with their look and, of, you know, and this is when new wave was starting to, to, to you know, uh, become big. So they never, they ended up breaking up, but a lot of bands, you know, quiet riot opened up for them back in the, uh, you know, uh, you know, of course, Randy Rhodes' version of Quiet Riot. A lot of the local bands kind of got their springboard opening up for bands like Detective. And this was, you know, Detective could be similar to a New York band who, who I'm sure you know stars. Um, oh, absolutely. Around the same era, they, they released, you know, three, you know, great records, uh, very underground. I, th- I think they had a big New York following. Uh, but anywhere else in the country. And another band is Legs Diamond that had, uh, that were signed before Van Halen. They had two albums out on, uh, two or three albums out on Mercury, uh, Firepower and a Diamond is a Hard Rock and a fantastic band. Uh, but they just kind of, and, and it's weird because certain places like in San Antonio, Texas, they're huge. Yeah. They they would play because, because of certain radio stations. I think, you know, they talk about in, in the movie certain radio stations could play songs. It wasn't, like it is today, all corporate. So if a radio station liked a band, like say a Legs Diamond, they would play it. And so for whatever reason, San Antonio, uh, same with the band Riot, the New York band Riot. They were huge in San Antonio. So you had certain pockets where these bands were kind of big. Um Depending on you, the
1: support they were getting from radio in those towns. Usually, exactly.
3: Right? Remember, you didn't have MTV then. MTV became the national radio station. When you were on MTV, you were on, everywhere nationally you know uh before then it was you know specific markets you know that right. that you could be big in so um detective had had a few different markets in la i don't think they really did much in uh, uh back east i mean john Hyde talks about in the story once uh you know they were touring and they had acdc open for them and right. he had never heard of acdc and he sees you know these guys come out and angus in his shorts and he's like what the hell is yeah. this Then he saw them play. He's like, fuck, I don't even want to go on stage. These guys, there's no way we could, you know, compete with this. So, you know, great stories like this. And that kind of tells you how long ago it was because – Bands like ACDC were club bands. They used to play the Starwood. Rush used to play the Starwood. Judas Priest used to play the Starwood. Um, I think Aerosmith actually did a couple shows, uh, at the Starwood, kind of like private shows. Uh, Cheap Trick used to play the Starwood. Stars used to play the Starwood. So all these bands were almost kind of like equals, you know, with, yeah. with, with the Van Halen's and with bands like Smile and Legs Diamond and all that. Yeah, and let's let's
1: talk about some of those bands. I w- quickly wanted to tell the listeners that there's a great story from the drummer of Detective that that's in your film, where he talks about actually jamming with the guys in Led Zeppelin, and uh, he there's a couple of really cool story Zeppelin esque stories that he tells in the Inside Metal film. But let's uh, let's jump over to Smile and talk about them. I mean, this is another band I really was not too aware of. Maybe I'd heard the name once or twice, but let's talk about Smile and how they went on to influence the scene.
3: Well, Smile was, uh, I think they started around 75, 76, and uh, they became a a pretty big band in the the Starwood, uh, primarily the Starwood, which was the big club at the time. And they were competing a lot with, uh, Van Halen was just starting to take off. Uh, so it it was, it was like Smile and Quiet Riot, the Randy Rhodes version of Quiet Riot were kind of the bands vying to be the next band to get signed. And Smile was a little bit more poppy. They were a great live band. They did a record. I think that they finally got signed in like the late or the early nineties. They did a record for MCA Curb which, to be honest, the band can't stand. And it's just way overproduced. I, You know, uh, when it came to that era, you know, you yeah, had the labels totally trying to make them into something they're not. But it's not a very good representative, uh, representation of the band. Uh, they were a really good live band. I remember seeing them back in the day a few times. Uh, again, a little bit more poppy, a little bit more commercial, but great frontman, Stottie Waller. The drummer, people cited as as one of the best drummers uh, around, uh, Jimmy Volpe. Uh, who later actually played with Warrior. He was on the Fighting for the Earth album with a uh, Joe Floyd, our co-producer. Yeah,
1: great record. Great. I yeah, love Warrior. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, the, Smile was, was, was definitely a band that just never got their, their break. You know, I think once Van Halen hit, you know, the new wave band started, it became, you know, at, at that, at that time, this is before, like I said, before MTV, So you didn't have that copycat mentality, where, how the labels were after, you know, once, you know van halen and quiet riot and all those bands started to do well then boom the la metal scene exploded which will be on the on the next title we'll talk about you know when bands like you know wasp and black and blue and rat and uh, you know armored saint and all the bands started you know getting signed but back then if you had one band, now when halen-
1: you say the next title so there'll be there'll be a, a part two to this
3: Yes, I, I wanted to kind of clarify this, this, uh, the, this is the inside metal is going to be an ongoing series. Oh, and, okay. I did not uh, the, know that. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the inside LA metal is going to be a three part trilogy and each is going to be two DVDs because there's just so much material. So, you know, the pioneers of LA hard rock and metal is, uh, uh basically from 1975 to 1981. It's a two-DVD set. The second title is going to be The L.A. Metal Scene Explodes, and that's going to be 1982 to roughly 1986. And that will be, of course, a lot of the bands you're familiar with. Um, you know, basically when the scene exploded, when MTV came into play, when the label started signing the bands, you know, the, you know, uh, have the, you know, the Rats, Motley's, uh, you know, uh, 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 Quiet Riot, uh, Rough Cut, uh, Black and Blue, uh, even, you know, like the Racer X, the Leather Wolf, Warrior, Malice, you know, yeah. all, all well, those. I love all those bands. Yeah, Lizzie so Borden. Yeah. So that was kind of, that was really when the scene exploded and when people started to get familiar with LA. And we're gonna kind of stop it at that point because I think from eighty six on when the poisons and uh warrants and all those bands of slaughters that that's scene that's kind of been the story's been told. Right. And it really wasn't what I was into. And it it did get kind of ridiculous as as it was told in and you know, like in Penelope Sphere's movie uh that she did decline uh part two right um and you know there's enough dvds uh, about that enough behind the musics about that so i wanted to commit more to the underground so our third title is going to actually be the rise of la thrash metal because i really wanted to uh concentrate because there were so many great la thrash bands and power metal bands that kind of got pushed to the wayside because la was you know when people thought la metal they thought glam you know, and so the glam scene took precedence. So, um, uh, you know, San Francisco ended up getting all the glory for the, uh, thrash bands, but you know, you look at three out of the big, big four bands, you know, uh, uh, Megadeth Slayer, and of course Metallica, they're all originally LA bands. Totally. So, yeah. so many other great bands, you know, you got Hyrax, you got Abator, Agent Steel, Dark Angel, you know, so we interview all, all these bands, uh, Cryptic Slaughter. So, um, Yeah, I I really wanted to to, to tell the story, Mark. Like you say, a a, a story that hasn't been told. There's no point for me to do a a a movie that's that's been told before. I want to kind of turn people on to uh, a scene that and bands that they may not have heard of, or you know, kind of wow, this you know, this, this is a whole. Uh, different uh, meaning to L.A. than I thought, because like I said, L.A. is huge. You know, you have Orange County, you have the Valley, you got Pasadena, you got uh, the South Bay. But everyone thinks Hollywood and Hollywood was a glam scene. You know, it was primarily glam, but there was a lot of great heavy bands, you know, uh, from LA and hopefully we could do um you know continue on to do some uh, inside you know, I love to do inside New York metal as you know there's so many great bands you know Riot as we mentioned Stars yeah. you had uh, The Rods, Manowar, um, Twisted Sister of course and then you had even underground bands like The Good Rats and you know, uh, so many bands, Virgin Steel out of, out of, uh, the, the New York area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people think Twisted Cisterns and so many uh, of the big bands, but, you know, I, I love that. And I used to collect demos and I remember all these bands, you know, when they came out. And, um, I think these bands sh- you know, should be documented and, uh, cause they were great and they were big. I mean, the scene in LA before the, the Motleys and the Rats and all that was huge. Starwood. Right was, you know, a 700-seat venue. You would have yesterday and today come down all the time from the Bay Area. They used to play at least once a month. They would do three nights at the Starwood. You know, Legs Diamond, the same, Snow and A La Carte, and Quiet Riot with Randy Rose. I mean, these bands were unsigned, you know, packing out, you know, seven, 800-seat venues. So it was uh, – and, and, you know, you, I, I don't know how it is in New York, but here in L.A., the club scene is dead. There is no scene. All the clubs have washed up. There's no more key club. They are closing down the House of Blues here in L.A. There's no live music scene. The the yeah. scene is completely dead. And um, I mean, in is- New
1: York, there is definitely a music scene, but it's it's has it's very, very far away from metal. And it takes place in Brooklyn, New York, which is right. over the past 10 to 15 years has become this real hipster hotbed artist musician Scene, but it the metal scene. I mean, there actually are a couple metal bars and clubs in Williamsburg, Brooklyn now. But it's I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a scene. It's more like it's a, not like
3: the Ritz or the Roseland. No, or, right?
1: yeah, Roseland actually closed down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so the metal scene in New York, I don't I don't actually think is is all that healthy right now.
3: I think everywhere, pretty much in the states. I mean, in Europe, it's booming.
1: You know? Right, it's Sweden, uh, Scandinavia especially it's, it's yeah, just Germany, massive. Over. Yeah.
3: yeah. But yeah. you know, in the States it's, it's, it's sad and it's um, I don't think it's ever going to come back. I mean, a lot of people say, Oh Bob, you're going to bring back the scene and it's not coming back. I mean, let's be yeah. honest. It's never going to be like it was. I mean, especially with today's standard with the cell phones and the YouTube and this and that people just don't go out to shows like, like yeah. they did in, in the past, but I at least want to present Uh, And a lot of the younger bands that came out to the screenings that we had, they were just blown away, and they're going back listening to. And hopefully, it'll influence some of the younger bands to get out there and play and build a following. And you know, whether it's a backyard party or a bar or whatever, just you know, kind of bring that feeling back, even though
1: bring the excitement back, definitely, exactly. Yeah. So, Bob, before we go any further here, because I could talk to you all night about this stuff, but let's let's talk about. The fan support, the the support that's needed to get this movie into theaters. There is a, a place that people can go, a fan backed uh, page, right? Do, do you have that web yeah. address?
3: Yeah. Metalrockfilms.com. And I want to thank you, Mark. I saw even before we got in contact, I saw on the uh, contributors that you donated a healthy uh, donation to the page. And I want to thank you personally.
1: Yeah. Well, my good friend Mitch Lafon told me about the movie and sent me a trailer. And I was uh, so impressed that I had to give a, a little something. so I And I, su- I encourage all the Talking Metal listeners to go to metal rocks, metalrockfilms.com. We will have that link through today's show notes on talkingmetal.com. And go over and, you know, whatever you can give, whether it's five bucks or a hundred bucks, you know, make a donation and let's help Get this story out to the masses. And
3: we do have good uh, uh, prizes or, uh, I guess, gifts, we should we should call it uh, for for each donation you make. We got uh, signed DVDs, signed posters and uh, different tiers. Uh, so to speak, for the donations. We got like a gold record plaque. Uh, you know, you can have your name credited in the movie. So, you know, for your donations, you you will get something back. And um, what the donations are basically for, Mark, is for this theater run. When we put this together, we weren't really expecting um, the, 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 the executive producer, uh, Warren Croyle, uh, started the company Metal Rock Films. He's got a huge DVD network. Huge. They do a lot of, not, not, um, not just music, but tons of, you know, conspiracy, uh, movie DVDs and, and just a, a huge network that he does. Um, and, uh, when, when we put this together, we didn't really even think about the theaters, but at the screening, we had, uh, a guy by the name of Doug Cluthy from DRK Productions. Came out and he presented. He he says, you know, I he brought a lot of these Sam Dunn movies, like the Rush movie, and I believe he's working on the uh, he's doing the Guns and Roses three D movie to the theater. Oh, okay. So Good. he's you know got a great name, and he says, dude, I'd love to take this to the theaters, and uh we said, yeah, this would be fantastic, but obviously, it, it, you know, it wasn't really in our budget. It's it's pretty expensive to you know rent up theaters and you know, cause you have to rent out kind of the independent theaters to do something like this and do the proper promotion. And so we got chipster PR behind us, as you know, and we have Bob chaparty who runs the fan back page. And you probably remember Bob from concrete marketing. He did the foundations right. form of, sure. he's like the metal marketing guru. And, uh, we got them involved to, to kind of do a, a fun, a crowdfunding, uh campaign to help us basically, um, uh, pay for the uh the uh, the uh, the screenings because I think you know to have this on the big screen and to bring it to the people before it comes out on d v d you know, it's, it's a great, great thing. And what we would want to do is make it real special, do kind of q and A Q&A afterwards and, and just make it a, a really cool event where the people could meet, you know, say a Stephen Quadros or Carlos Cavazzo from who was in snow before Quiet Riot or a Don Dawkin or, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So that, that's kind of what we're aiming for. And we've already, uh, Doug's already booked several theaters, but the more money we could raise in the fan back campaign and we've got about, I believe about 25 days left or so. Uh, the more the more theaters we could hit, and the more special we could make the event. So, okay. um, I, I want the people to know every penny that is going into this uh, fan back campaign is going to be used toward the promotion and marketing for the theaters. Uh, so, it's, it's it's definitely a good cause, and it's great uh, not just for this movie, but I think for the, the the whole heavy metal cause in general, just to get it out nationally.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a part of history that needs to. Be told. So definitely, guys, go support Bob and the movie Metal Rock Films. Or, I'm sorry, at MetalRockFilms.com. The movie is Inside Metal. So many great interviews. We're talking major stars, guys. Lars Ulrich is in this movie. Uh, Steven Piercy, Don Dokken, Chris Holmes. I mean, let's talk about Chris Holmes. Chris Holmes, every time I see him, he doesn't appear in public much. Yeah. But when he does... It's a complete disaster yeah. and and mess and people laugh and make fun of his unfinished music videos and his drunken interviews. It, however, he's... however, in your movie, he's great. Yeah. He tells a great story about having Eddie Van Halen at his house and opening the windows, hoping people th- would think it was him. And and he sounds coherent. He sounds. Almost, I hate to say, but normal. Yeah, you know what? What is Chris like in real life? Well, you know, is he this this out of control character that we all kind of have been programmed to think he is, or is he more normal like a, he appears you know, in your film? He's,
3: he's 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 a real sweet guy, and and I've always been uh, I've always loved Chris Holmes with Wasp. I love those first couple Wasp albums. I I love oh, yeah. the album Kill Fuck Die that he came back on. Um, you know, he, I just think he, I you know. I, again some of the, the the movies they are are the the videos he's done is embarrassing It's like dude so i i really wanted to show the good because i've talked to him before i've i've uh, you know i think people love you know people love the tragedy and people love to put uh people like that down especially you know mus- musicians that have had hard times whether it be on drugs and whatever and you know, but I, I always had kind of a soft spark for for uh, Chris and um, a good friend, Gina Zamparelli, who was very instrumental in helping out, getting people like Stephen Piercy and, and Chris uh, Holmes on this. And I told her in the beginning, because I know Chris loves to slag off, you know, Wasp and Blackie. And, you know, he kind of got uh, a bitter taste in his mouth, which uh, is, is understandable. And I said, you know, it's not about that. Let's talk I know Chris and Eddie were good friends. I want to sit down, talk to Chris about those times. So she got with Chris and told him what this is about. And we kind of prepared that in a way just so he knew. And, and you know, all the people that we talked about, they love talking about this era. You know, Steve Plunkett from, you know, Wolfgang, who, you know, was later obviously an autograph and all Don Dock and all these people that God, nobody talks about this, Bob. This was such a great era. So, all these people were real happy to talk about this. And I think Chris was too. It, it was something that, you know, fond memories that he had, you know, jamming in his bedroom with Eddie Van Halen and, you know, just uh, some of the great times then. So, I think once we started talking, you know, the, the artists really loosened up. I think at first they were a little bit skeptical. And, you know, then we, got together and it was just it was just we we're just you know talking metal basically talking you know just yes. bullshitting and i think right once on. they kind of saw the angle they kind of loosened up and then it just kind of flowed the stories just started coming out of them and that, that's what i really wanted is, is is the history you know to tell the people what i wanted to bring the viewer back to 1978 or 79 you know i mean i love those kind of movies and not even necessarily the music movies i mean there's that great documentary that Stacey Purelfa did on, on a skateboarding uh, Dogtown. Um, uh, right, yeah. That, I've seen yeah, that, yeah. So, which was fantastic because it's got all that old video footage from the 70s. And the soundtrack back then was all metal. You know, everyone thinks, oh, skateboard punk. No, that's Back then, all those, you know, Stacey Peralta and Tony Alva, they were all, it was all Zeppelin, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent. And, and I remember that as a young kid in Huntington Beach. That was, you know, surfer and skateboard capital. And, and, and I go, wow, I want to do that with, with metal. I mean, it brings it just really brings you back to that era, you know, of the seventies. And that's why we got some great original footage from the Starwood of bands like Snow and A la Carte and Smile and Quiet Riot with Rhodes and, um, you know, which was real hard to find to come by because this is like old film footage and stuff. But, you know, we had some great people, Alan Wood, that really helped us out immensely and getting a lot of this stuff. Kevin Estrada, who uh, donated so many fantastic photos. So we had a great team of people. And uh, as I mentioned, my co-producer, Joe Floyd, who did all the camera work, he was in Warrior and he was very instrumental. in. was
1: he the guitar player?
3: He was a guitarist. He's the brainchild great. of Warrior. He basically it pretty much is, is Warrior. And they're yeah. back together doing stuff. And everyone loves Joe. He's been an audio engineer for years. So once a lot of these mus- musicians knew that Joe was involved, like, oh, fuck, I love Joe. Yeah, Joe's great. So that kind of opened up a lot of things. And Carl Alvarez, uh, who was uh, my other co-producer, helped out immensely. And Curtis uh, Don Vito and Robert Gaston, the, the associate producers who edited the movie, they they're, they all grew up on this. So we all had this pa- passion about it. So it was a great team. And of course, Warren Croyle, who goes way back, he used to be in LA. He uh, used to work alongside Andy Johns as an engineer. And so he's, you know, he was familiar. He, everyone got what I was trying to do and everyone agree this this is something that's got to be put out and which is fantastic because if I was to do this with someone like a VH1 or a bigger company you know they would have stipulations well this band isn't big enough nobody knows about this or you can't you know but this was fantastic because it was like it was just an open drawing board for me to include the bands and the great thing is I we did get the Lars Ulrichs and the Don Dawkins and the Carlos Cavazos and the Stephen Piercy's but It was important for me to get the Stephen Quadros and the Brian O'Brien and the Greg Leons and the, you know, the people that Scotty Waller's, that people may not be familiar with. But in that era, they were just as important, you know, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. We're going to have everything linked through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. MetalRockFilms.com is the website. So, guys, please support Bob and Inside Metal. Bob, before I let you go, let me ask you a couple off the beaten path Van Halen questions. I want to ask you about Randy Rhodes specifically. Now, you were in the scene back then. Did Randy Rhodes playing change drastically after he heard Van Halen?
3: No, actually, they they were around the same time. And 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 to be, I I wish I was around that era. I mean, I was a I was a little bit too young to catch uh, Randy Rhodes uh with Quiet Riot or Van Halen I saw a lot of the bands coming into Orange County at the time because I was like 15 16 I wasn't able to drive out to LA but I, I did catch DeBro which was right after Randy joined Ozzy and that was uh I believe Greg Leon was was playing guitar with Kevin DeBro um, and then they, of course, changed their name back to Quiet Riot and did the Metal Health album and, and you know what everyone remembers. But no, I, I I think actually Randy and Eddie, they came around the same time. And uh, I think Kelly Garney really tells the story well. Kelly Garney was the original bass player for Quiet Riot before Rudy Sarzo, and he was Randy's best friend. And he said that Van Halen kind of dominated the Pasadena area and Quiet Riot kind of dominated the uh, Valley which was west of Pasadena, and they all vied to conquer Hollywood. So it was a a big competition. So they both started around the same time. So I think, um, you know, really Eddie Van Halen, George Lynch, uh, Dave Medicetti, Randy Rhodes, they're all from the same era. They were all all battling it out, you know, at at the same time. And, and, you know, uh, Van Halen used to open up for uh, – uh, Y and T a lot. Uh, and they open up for us, uh, certain shows with the Wolfgang. So, you know, this.
1: Yeah. And that, that one famous show they did, uh, I mean, there were a lot of famous shows, but the, the show Gene Simmons went to, uh, see, he was actually there to see George Lynch's band, I think.
3: Yeah. That's the story. He went to see, uh, I, th- I think it was actually Exciter because they, they were they were a big band. If, if you know like songs like "Paris Is Burning" and a lot of the songs from the 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 real heavy songs from the first Dokken album, a lot of those were old Exciter songs. And you know people like Brian Slagle and uh, a lot of people say they were like the heaviest band. I never actually caught Exciter, but yeah, the rumor is Gene went to see Exciter uh, or he saw George Lynch, and then the next time he saw Exciter, I believe Van Halen was opening. And he saw this kid Eddie Van Halen. He's like, "Shit, man, I prefer Eddie Van Halen uh, over George." And that's that's supposedly what what uh, how uh, uh, Van Halen got discovered by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. So um, yeah, great, a lot of great stories like that. But um, I think Randy Rhodes. Got, when Randy Rhodes was in Quiet Riot, he, Quiet Riot was very poppy. They weren't really a metal band. They were yeah. more pop. And I think uh, Carlos, you know, because
1: on those first two Quiet Riot records, the Japanese releases, Right, uh, he doesn't shred. And it no. almost sounds like he's not at the technical level that he would be a few years later with Ozzy.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, like what Carlos Cavazo says in the documentary, was, it wasn't until, you know, he joined Ozzy where, you know, Carlos realized how fantastic he was. I think he kind of held back a lot. I think that was, you know, Kevin Dubrow wanted Quiet Riot to be a real kind of a poppy, uh, a band. And uh, I think Eddie Van Halen definitely brought in the guitar shredding. I mean, even the first couple Yesterday and Today records uh struck down in their first album uh, didn't have that much guitar shredding. I mean, when that first Van Halen album came out, and that's why there was so much talk about Van Halen, because it really was that important and that pivotal, because that was the first album that was just guitar overload, you know, before Ingve, before the guitar shredders, that album set the benchmark. And before that, you know, you had the Montrose album, you had, you know, Richie Blackmore, Page, all these guys. No one did a guitar solo like, you know, Eruption. You know, on a record, it was kind of unth- unheard of. I mean, you heard little stints of like, you know, Queen and like Brighton Rock, you know, Brian May will do his little thing, but nothing like what Eddie did and what Eddie portrayed. So he he definitely took it to the next level. And it was, you know, just that opened the door. Obviously, I think when yeah. the first Fan Hailing record came out, I think that's when uh really Lynch and uh, and, and all these other people really said, OK, we just we got to step it up man and and it was all about that just stepping up your game man when when a guitar player came around and you saw him doing something it it was a big competition you know greg leon was right in that mix too you know and, now david lee
1: roth was Obviously, in this scene, hung out with these guys, played gigs with these guys. And when I say these guys, I mean Kevin Dubrow, Quiet Riot. I mean, even in the later years, he would party with Stephen Piercy. And yet, after all these other bands started to break many years later, he was so derogatory and always put down the... L.A. hard rock and metal bands that followed after Van Halen. Yeah, Why I do you think said. that was? Why think, did he want to separate himself I think from these jealous. guys?
3: I think it's jealous. I think he always thought he was special, and he was. I mean, there's no question about it. He was the the top, you know, he was a front man. But back in the day, if. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, and, and, and you know, Steve Plunkett said this, and, and a lot of people have said this, he, he, he ripped off Jim Dandy. He wanted to be yeah. like Jim Dandy. If, if you hear some of the old Van Halen stuff, uh, if you've heard the old demos and stuff, he's all over the place screaming. And I think, I, I think people don't realize how important Ted Templeman was to Van Halen. That first album, I mean, you could hear the old demos and the live stuff, and Van Halen's all over the place. I mean, the band is shredding. Uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen shredding, but I mean, I mean, David Lee Roth is all over the place, you know, with a wow, woo, you know, what? I think Ted Templeman really honed him into, you know, just do it here, do it here, you know, really minimizing that sound. So, um, I think he had, a, he, he had a big structure and I think David Lee Roth, once Van Halen broke, Because it was a very competitive vibe. Like I said, all these guys were were vying for the deal, and Van Halen got it, and they just took off. And I think that was kind of his way of keeping the other bands down. I don't really know. I mean, it would have been great to talk to Van Halen. We approached him, and we had a great conversation with Michael Anthony. I thought he would do it. But um, I think his wife kind of – uh, I think she, she manages, uh, like, is his personal manager. And she was a little bit against, she loved the idea. She goes, Oh, smile. Oh, God, these bands. I remember all these bands. This is great that you're doing it. She was really positive about it. But I think at that point, that she didn't want, you know, him talking Van Halen or go, to go back into the whole Van Halen thing. So she never got back with us at the end, which was a shame because it would yeah. have been great to get, obviously, Van Halen's point of view. And uh, The Runaways, too, were another band that we, I thought we were going to get, and we just couldn't, uh, couldn't lock them down. And timing was a big part of it. You know, we didn't have a huge budget. We couldn't fly around like, you know, like someone like a Sam Dunn does, you know, to do interviews. We did most of them here in L.A. So if a band was out on tour, it was kind of difficult. But, yeah, the Van Halen thing, I, 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 that always bugged me about David Lee Roth.
1: I mean, there's just so many stories, even Axl Rose, when he was on uh, the Eddie Trunk show many years ago, told stories about hanging out with David Lee Roth. He was definitely friendly with these guys. He partied with these guys. They played gigs together. But yet in front of the press, he always would yeah. diminish them.
3: Well, I, I think that was I mean, that was the key thing, too, because I mean, and that was the thing about rock and metal. And that's what kept it on the edge in a way it's just, it's just kind of the same thing with the Axl Rose and the, you remember the Vince Neil right. dispute they had, you know, I'm going to kick your ass. Out. Who knows if that was made for the press or not, but it, 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 it's rock and roll. And back then it was super competitive. And, and they talk about that in the movie, they would be, you know, Brian O'Brien and, and all the drummers had that competition too, as well as all the guitar players, you know, and and Brian O'Brien and Stephen Quadros and, Jimmy Volpe, they were all good friends. But when it came to live, it was like, I'm gonna kick your fucking ass. You ain't shit. You know, I'm gonna, you know, beat you down. I'm gonna, you know, and that and that was kind of the attitude. So I think they might have been doing a little bit of role playing in the press, but I think a lot of it was was real. I mean, these guys, it was it was a vicious competitive scene. And um, you know, especially back then because you could only have one band. Once one band made it, it was like, okay. You know, the label's, all right, we already got our metal band. Okay, Van Halen made it. We don't need another Van Halen. Whereas afterwards, I, I think I think uh, David Lee Roth got upset that at that time when all the bands started doing this. And truthfully, I mean, you see the Brett Michaels and the Vince Neals and all these guys. Uh, everyone took from David Lee Roth, you know, and, and they admit it. And um, I think it started to bug him after a while. And, and, and you know, I, I could kind of see that where the copycat mentality got a little bit too much and people weren't doing their own original thing. But then again, David, like you know, people said, David took from um, uh, Jim Danny from Black Oak, Arkansas. A lot of people had said, uh, uh, and I, I think Alan Wood said it in the movie, uh, that David Lee Roth used to come to every Smile show and took a lot of stuff from Scotty Pollock right. from Smile. So I can't confirm if that's true or not. That's just what was said in the movie. And I have heard that from several people. And uh, even Scotty kind of said, well, you know, he he did do the, the Russian thing mm-hmm. with the splits on stage. And then he saw David Lee Roth doing that on the second album. So who knows, you know, but a, a lot of it was taken from, you know, you know, taking licks from people like that. And that's why Eddie Van Halen used to play with his back turned when he was doing the hammer-on thing. He would play at the Starwood or at the Whiskey, and when he would do the hammer-ons, he would turn his back to the audience because that was his secret guitar technique that, you know, he didn't want anyone else to use. And then, you know, lo and behold, within a year later, everyone was doing that, you know, so... Yeah, it's it's it was a whole different game back then, you know. It was you didn't have guitar instructional videos. I mean, if you wanted to learn a lick, you would have to go yeah. out to see the band, you know. You didn't have MTV. You couldn't watch videos. You know, if if you're lucky, you might catch one of these bands on Don Kirshner's Rock Concert at one in the morning on a Saturday night, you know, yeah. on TV. But that was it. So um, it was a whole different game then. So it was super competitive. Yeah.
1: Very good. Great stuff, Bob and let's get into some warrior right now this is fighting for the earth cool